What's better is one day in your courts than thousands elsewhere. You're listening to an audio teaching from Cross Connection Church Houston. We're a small church located in Pasadena, Texas, and it is our mission to save the lost, equip the saved, serve both the lost and saved, and to send the equipped. To this end, we teach through the Bible on a verse-by-verse basis, starting at the beginning of a book and working until the end. If you would like to learn more about our church, you can find us at connectedtojesus.org or check us out on Facebook at Cross Connection Church Houston. We pray that this teaching would grow you in the grace and love of Jesus Christ our Lord. Relationships are one of the most important things that we have as believers in Christ. And the Bible has a lot to say about our relationships with one another, our relationships with God. Uh, And in chapters 12 through 16 of Romans, Paul challenges us in 10 different kinds of relationships that we have. And within each one of these relationships, he gives us several challenges as to how we should conduct ourselves and, and live in that relationship. And so far, we've looked at some challenges in our relationship with God. We've looked at some, some challenges in our relationships with the gifts of the Spirit. And this morning, we're going to look at one of the most significant relationships we have, one of the most important ones for us to understand, and that is our relationship with other believers in Christ. The Bible has a lot to say about our relationship with other believers, but as you go through Scripture and you look at what the Bible says, one of the most common things that we see come up over and over again, one of the most significant and important challenges is the challenge to love. Jesus himself gave us this great challenge in John 13, 34 and 35. He says, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all will know you are my disciples if you have love for one another. Jesus commands us to love each other as believers just like he loved us. And he says, this world, when they look and they say, you know, how are they going to know that we're Jesus' disciples? Notice it's not, you know, by how well we teach the Bible or how much we pray or how often we go to church. He says, they're going to know it by your love for other believers in the body of Christ. And Jesus gives us this important challenge to demonstrate that love. In 1 Peter 4, 8, Peter gives us this challenge as well. He says, And above all things have fervent love for one another, for love will cover a multitude of sins. Peter's challenging believers again. He's saying, above everything else, the most important thing that you can do in your relationship with another believer is have a fervent love for them. Show that. Demonstrate that. And one of the great results of that, Peter says, is because love covers a multitude of sins. In 1 Corinthians 13, we have what is considered the love chapter because Paul goes into detail about a definition of love, about how important love is. And at the very end of it, he kind of just shows the magnitude of love with this statement in 1 Corinthians 13, 13. It says, And now abide faith, hope, love, these three, but the greatest of these is love. Love is so essential in any relationship, but the focus of what Paul's going to be sharing with us this morning in Romans 12 is that relationship with other believers, that we need to demonstrate love to them. And the thing that I love about what Paul does here in Romans 12 is he doesn't just say, you know what, love each other and then move on. He gets very practical with us. He's going to share actually in these verses 15 practical ways in which you and I can demonstrate love 
to one another. And so, you know, we don't just kind of have to be left with, okay, I know I'm supposed to love more effectively, but I don't really know what that looks like practically. And, and I'm very happy about this because, you know, when I get a challenge, especially a big challenge like love someone, I want to know, okay, what does that look like? You know, how do I do that? You know, give me some practical things that I can actually have tangibly to put into practice and then, you know, actually do this. And so that's what Paul is going to be doing uh, in this section. And since he gives us 15 different practical ways. That's a lot of information, a lot of points to kind of take in all at once. And so we're going to break this up into two. We're going to look at the first seven this morning. We'll look at the second eight next week. But all that Paul's going to share with us in this section is just so practical and applicable because each one of us are called to love other believers. And hopefully you will see, hey, here are ways in which we can do that effectively. And so let's look at, we're just going to focus on the first seven practical ways that Paul shares with us in Romans 12, verses 9 through 11 this morning. Let's see what he has to say. Let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what is evil. Cling to what is good. Be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. In honor, giving preference to one another, not lagging in diligence, fervent in spirit, serving the Lord. When it comes to our relationship with other believers, just the start of this, this is just the first seven, we'll have eight more. I mean, if we would just do these seven things in our relationship with each other, I mean, our relationships would be so much better. I mean, People who were unbelievers came into the church and they see us treating each other like this, they would recognize, wow. You must be a follower of Jesus if you have that kind of love and demonstrate that kind of love to one another. The first way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is to love without hypocrisy. The Greek word here translated hypocrisy means disguised, insincere, full of deception. This was a word actually used within acting. And in acting, you would have people that would get up on stage, especially uh, in the times of the Greeks, and, and they would put on a mask and they would use a different voice. And, you know, they, they were playing a part. They were playing something that was different than them. They were pretending to be something that they weren't. Uh, and so, you know, this is what this word is ultimately speaking of, that, you know, hypocrites, they, they disguise what they really are. They're just putting on a show. They're, they're pretending and they're not real. And so Paul is sharing with us that, you know what, in this challenge to love, we need to be without hypocrisy. Love people without a disguise, without pretending, without deception. Our love needs to be real, not fake. We shouldn't put on an act. We shouldn't put on a show. We shouldn't pretend that we really love and pretend that that that's something that we feel towards somebody, but not really actually feel that way at all. You know, I think one of the biggest hypocritical lovers that we see in the Bible is Judas. Uh, you know, he'd probably be stand out as one of the, the picture boy or poster boys of, of hypocritical love. And we see it throughout, you know, the gospels as we look at Judas. But one time that we see that shows his hypocrisy and his love is, you know, he's real upset for, um, the, the use of something. And we're going to see that what he's claiming to be upset is not really the real reason he's upset. In John chapter 12, verses 4 through 6, we see this. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, who would betray him, said, Why was this fragrant oil not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? This he said, not that he cared for the poor, 
but because he was a thief and had the money box and used to take what was put in it. This is a wonderful thing that happens right before this. Mary comes and she anoints Jesus with this costly perfume. And Judas, after this happens, is, you know, all upset and says, you know, why didn't we take that money and we sell or take that perfume and sell it? And we could have had all this money and then we could have given it to the poor. You know, he's pretending like, oh, I want that money because I love the poor so much. And that would have been a much better use of that perfume. But the real reality was he loved himself. He was a thief. He kept the money that the disciples had and he would spend it on himself. So he really had no love for the poor at all. He was just using that as like, oh, I love the poor so much we could have done it for them. When the reality was he just loved himself. And so it was just a show. It wasn't real. It wasn't genuine. You know, probably the the most well-known hypocritical love of Judas is the night that he betrays Jesus. And what does he use? He uses this great sign of affection, this great sign of love, which is a kiss. And he comes and he gives this kiss to Jesus. But we know that he's only using that kiss to point out who it was that the soldiers should arrest. He did it to betray Jesus. And so Judas was someone with a lot of hypocritical love. And unfortunately, when you look within the body of Christ, you see that there's a lot of hypocritical love between believers. You know, it would be great if that wasn't the reality, but it's true. We oftentimes are very hypocritical in our love. I know I have been guilty of hypocritical, insincere, disguised, fake love, acting like I really cared about certain people, even use, you know, words that would make you think that I did. Oh, I hope you're having a great week. You're in my thoughts and prayers. May God bless you. I love you. But I didn't mean what I was saying. I didn't act upon those words either. I wasn't praying for them. I wasn't thinking about them. I didn't really love them. It was hypocritical. It was insincere. It wasn't real. I'm sure that all of us are guilty at some point in our life with some kind of relationship where we have this hypocritical, insincere love. Saying that we love someone without really meaning it, without really demonstrating it with our actions. And this is something I think is so important for us to realize is, you know, it's easy oftentimes just to use the words, oh, I love you, but it's something very different to prove it. You know, we can say it, but if it's real, then it's going to be followed by action. That's what John tells us in 1 John 3.18. He says, my little children, let us not love in word or in tongue, but in deed and in truth. What John's saying is, yeah, oh, a lot of you can you know, say I love you in word and tongue, but there's no deeds, there's no action, it's not real truth, it's not really genuine. And so don't just have verbal words of love, actually have it true and genuine and demonstrated. Don't let it be hypocritical. And so the first practical way to love other believers is to love without hypocrisy. Don't let it be fake. The next way Paul challenges us to love other believers is to abhor what is evil and to cling to what is good. You know, this one is so important because if you look at the definition of love in 1 Corinthians 13, you see two very important things. That love is connected to everything that is good and love is the opposite of everything that is evil. And so this is a great challenge here that we see of abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good because If you're loving, that is exactly what you're going to do. Because I just want to have you look at this list, this definition that we see in 1 Corinthians 13, and notice the connection with good and the opposition of evil. Love suffers long, is kind, 
does not envy, love does not parade itself, is not puffed up, does not behave rudely, does not seek its own, is not provoked, thinks no evil, does not rejoice in iniquity, but rejoices in truth, bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things, love never fails. Since love is the opposite of evil, and since love is connected with everything that's good, this twofold challenge that we have here just makes perfect sense. Abhor what is evil, cling to what is good. The Greek word translated abhor means to have a dislike, disgust, and horror for something. I remember the first horror movie I ever saw was Nightmare on Elm Street. I was young. I shouldn't have been watching it. My brother and I wanted to see it. It had just come out in the movie theater, and a friend of ours said, oh, you got to see it. It's so great. Well, we couldn't go to the movie because we were way too young, so we bought a ticket for a kid's movie, and then we snuck into Nightmare on Elm Street and watched it, and I remember there were scenes in that movie that I had a horror for. I mean, it made me sick watching some of that as a little kid, um, and I was just kind of disgusted by some of what was in there. And, you know, I'm sure most of us have had feelings of that, of, of disgust, of just, you know, we see things and we're just kind of horrified and sickened by it. And the challenge for us is that we would have that feeling towards things that are evil, things that are sinful. That as we see them, as we see the evil in the world today, that there would be a, a, a disgust within us, that we would be horrified with what's going on around us that is evil. Adam Clark said this, Believers should hate sin as you would hate the hell to which it leads. You know, when we look at sin, I think there's two things we should always remember. Where it leads you, hell and the cost in which God had to pay in order for us to be forgiven of it. Both those things should just be a reminder of how wicked and horrible sin and the evil it brings is, and that should make us want to abhor it, be disgusted by it, steer clear of it. Because if you truly abhor something, you're not going to go around it, you're not going to engage in it. You're not going to indulge in it. And this is the, the point here. If you're abhorring evil, then you're going to avoid those things. When you abhor evil and you avoid those things, it helps you to love. Because love is the opposite of these evil things. And so if you're truly wanting to love, then you have to abhor the things that are opposite of love. Now, unfortunately, our sinful flesh desires a lot of the evil of this world. It desires a lot of the sinful things that this world places before us. And that's our struggle. You know, there's our spirit, which is detesting the evil. There's our flesh, which desires the evil. And we kind of have this battle going on where we know we shouldn't want it, but yet there's part of us that does want it. We know we should, you know, be disgusted and horrified with certain things, but yet there's part of us sometimes that desires that. So what can we do to overcome that struggle? I think one of the things we can do is the second challenge that Paul gives us here, and that is cling to what's good. Don't just be someone who dislikes and is disgusted by evil. Go the other side and cling to the things that are good. The Greek word translated cling means to glue, cement, join, or fasten firmly together. You know, you and I need to make a choice to say, you know what? I am going to fasten myself firmly to things that are good, to people that are good influences, that are good in my life. I'm going to dwell upon and think about 
things that are good, not things that are evil. And I'm just going to hold on to that. I'm going to cling to that. I'm going to stay connected to that. You know, when we're firmly connected to the good and godly things, I think it starts to help us see how horrible the evil is. Because when you're connected to good and you're connected to God and you're connected and you're surrounding yourself with good things, it just, you know, the, the contrast to what the world is living for, the contrast to the evil that's around us just becomes more apparent and you start to see it for what it is. And hopefully there's that, you know, disgust and that dislike and that, you know what, this is so much better. I'm going to cling to this and avoid these evil things. As we cling to what is good, it helps us love because love is connected to what is good. Ray Steadman said this, Genuine love is God's kind of love, which hates what is evil. Genuine love never compromises with evil, never pats it on the back and says, this is going to be all right, let's forget about it. Genuine love never does that. It does not reject what is good, nor does it ever call good evil. I love that quote, especially for what we deal with in our culture today, because in our culture today, we have lots of people taking what is evil and calling it good, taking what God says is sinful and saying it's good. It's okay. You can indulge in this. There's nothing wrong with it. You know, we live in a culture that is taking what God clearly says is evil and telling us it's something that is good. And if you stand up against the culture and say, well, wait a second, no, that's not good, then you're labeled as unloving. But what is truly unloving is to take what is evil and say it's good, to take what is evil and to promote it and say, yeah, it's okay to do that. There's nothing wrong with that, that we would hold to what God says and that we would not approve of the things that are evil. Now, since our culture regularly is telling us evil things are good, and sometimes you see even within the body of Christ that we're adopting things that God clearly says are sinful, clearly says are evil, because the culture says it's not. We have a challenge in 1 Thessalonians 5, 21 and 22 that we should do. Test all things, hold fast to what is good, and abstain from every form of evil. Notice that Paul gives us the same challenge here of holding fast to the good things, abstaining from the evil things, but he throws in another challenge I think is so important for us in our culture today. Test all things. We need to test to determine, is it evil or is it good? Because we can't just listen to what the world says and say, well, if they say it's good, it must be good. No, the thing that we always test by is the Word of God. And so whatever the world says, we bring it back to the Word of God, and you're going to find that a lot of what they claim is good, God says is evil. And so we need to say, well, if God says it's evil, it's evil. And so those are the things I'm going to abhor and avoid and stay clear of. Those are not things that I'm going to cling to and do and follow. We need to test these things and then trust God's word and not the culture. So the second practical way we should show love to other believers is by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. The next way Paul challenges us to love other believers is to be kindly affectionate to one another with brotherly love. You know, here Paul is telling us that he wants us to have this kind, this affectionate, brotherly, sisterly, family love with each other. You know, all of us who are parents, who have kids, this is what we want from them. You know, you watch your kids and, you know, especially when you have more than one, you know, you want your children 
to be kind to each other. You want your children to show affection to one another. You want your children to love each other and demonstrate that love. You know, when I see Scarlett and Eden, you know, sharing kind words, demonstrating affection, just being loving to one another, it just melts my heart. I love that. That's what I want to see from them. But they're not always like that. I wish they were always like that, but there are lots of times when, you know, they don't show love to one another. They're not kind in their words. They're not affectionate in their actions. And, you know, it breaks my heart when I see my children treat each other unlovingly. And I bring that up because, you know, when we place our trust in Christ, something wonderful happens. We're adopted into the family of God. We become children of God, which makes us brothers and sisters in Christ. We are part of the family of God. And as our heavenly father, when God looks down, he wants to see his children loving each other. He wants us to see us affectionate towards one another in a godly way. He wants to see us kind to one another. And so often we're not that way. So often we're unloving. So often we're treating each other and saying things that are so unkind. And it breaks God's heart as our father, as he looks and says, I want my children to love each other and look at how you're treating one another. But you know what? It's also important for the world to see. You know, when I was single, I think it was my second year when I was in Scotland, uh, Thanksgiving came. They don't celebrate it in Scotland, but uh, there was an American family I had just met. I didn't know them, you know, and they knew I was single and I didn't have family over there. And they said, hey, we're having this Thanksgiving party. You know, we'd love for you to join us. And I'm thinking, oh, great. You know, I can have a Thanksgiving meal. I can go spend some time with some Americans here. This will be fun. And so I go there with this anticipation of how great it's going to be. And this was probably the most messed up family I have ever been around. We sit around this table and people are just going at it. They're cussing and screaming and just belittling each other. And actually two of the brothers got in a fist fight in the other room. And it was just, it was, I mean, the, the lack of love on Thanksgiving um, was crazy. But, uh, you know, it was, it was very uncomfortable being there. I couldn't get out of there quick enough. Uh, and, you know, but I bring that up because, you know, oftentimes unbelievers will come into a church. And notice Jesus says, they'll know you're my disciples by your love for one another. And sadly, a lot of unbelievers are in that situation like I was in, where it's very uncomfortable watching people who say they follow God and love God and just treat each other like dirt and are totally unloving to one another. And it's just this awkward, uncomfortable, like, this is what, what I expected. This is, I thought when I'd come to church, people would love each other and people would love me and I wasn't expecting this. And sadly, that's what a lot of people are experiencing as they're coming in and, and they're just getting something that God never intended. And for many of them, you know, they'll never come back. You know, they, they see that and they think, well, if that's Christianity, if that's the church, then I don't want anything to do with it. And so this love for one another, this brotherly love is so important for us to have, not just for the, the benefit of the church, but also for the benefit of the world that looks in and sees, hey, look at the difference. Look at how they love each other versus how the world loves. So the third practical thing we should do to show love to one another is to be kindly affectionate with brotherly love. The next challenge that Paul gives us is to, in honor, we should give preference to one another. The Greek word here, translated honor, means to place someone in a position of high esteem. And, you know, we pretty much all honor ourselves. 
But the question is, are we willing to esteem others? Are we willing to give that honor to others? And then right away, connected with this honor, Paul gives a practical thing. Hey, if you're going to esteem others, here's a practical way to do it. Honor them by giving preference to one another. Instead of preferring yourself, prefer someone else. Instead of just looking out for number one, why don't you look out for the needs of other people and demonstrate love to them by honoring and preferring them? You know, the biggest thing really that hinders love for others is selfishness. And we all struggle with that reality. We don't, we don't want to honor or give preference to others because we just want to honor and give preference to ourselves. You know, selfishness is ultimately just love for ourselves. And that's the struggle. Our love for ourselves gets in the way of loving others. And, and we need to get to a place where it's like, you know what? I'm going to demonstrate honor and preference and love for others and see that their needs before focusing on myself. We're given a great challenge in Philippians chapter 2 to not let our love for ourselves get in the way of our love for others. We're told this in Philippians 2, 3, and 4. Let nothing be done through selfish ambition or conceit, but in lowliness of mind let each esteem others better than himself. Let each of you look out not only for his own interest, but also for the interests of others. If we want to love others, then nothing that we do can be through selfish ambition or conceit. Once it's selfish, then it's not going to be loving to others, it's going to be loving to me. It can't be selfish ambition, it can't be conceit, it can't be all about me. If we truly want to love others, then there has to be a change in our perspective, a change in how we see things, and all of a sudden now, it's you that matters. It's you that I want to invest in. It's you and your needs that I want to focus on. And for that to happen, I have to humble myself and be willing to esteem others better than me, which is a struggle for all of us because we want to esteem ourselves the most. We want to take care of our needs the most and to be able to say, you know what, I'm going to humble myself and put your needs and your interests ahead of my own. But you know what? The next few verses reveal that's exactly what Jesus did. Jesus tells us, love others as I have loved you. And notice what we're told here in verses 5 through 8. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who being in the form of God, did not consider it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation, taking the form of a bondservant and coming in the likeness of men. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the death of the cross. Jesus loved us so much that he didn't look out for his own interests. If Jesus was looking out for his own interests, he would have never left heaven. I mean, why leave heaven, which is so great, and then become one of us, and then live the life that he lived, and be mocked, and be beaten, and be crucified? I mean, if he was looking out for himself, he would have never come. But he wasn't looking out for himself. It wasn't his interest that was most important. He was looking at us and what he could do to demonstrate love to us, and what he could do to have a relationship with us. He humbled himself and became one of us and died on the cross for our sins. So when Jesus tells us to love one another as I have loved you, this is part of that. Love like he did. Being willing to put others' interests ahead of my own. Being willing to humble myself and say, you know what, I am going to give them preference here. The love of self hinders us from loving others. 
And that's why it's a great habit to get into denying yourself. It's a great habit to get into fasting, which denies your fleshly cravings. It's a great thing to just give preference to others. And so the fourth practical way we should show love to other believers is by honoring them through giving preference to one another. The next way that Paul challenges us to love other believers is not to be lagging in diligence. We show love through diligence. And here's the reality. The Greek word translated diligence means earnestness in accomplishing something to strive after, to give all diligence in something. This Greek word was used when you needed to overcome something that was difficult. And so they would throw this word diligence out there. If you're going to overcome something that's difficult, you need this, this earnestness, this willingness to give it your all in order to accomplish this task. And when we seek to show love, we need this. Because loving people's hard. It's not easy. It's not simple, you know, for the most part. Many people are very difficult when it comes to loving them. And so we need that diligence. And that's why we're told that when we love, be careful not to be lagging in diligence. This Greek word translated lagging means sluggish, slothful, or lazy. You know, unfortunately, as Christians, oftentimes I know I'm guilty of it. I'm sure you are as well. We are sometimes just lazy and slothful when it comes to loving others. Instead of being earnest and diligent in our love for difficult people, we're also lazy. We don't put much effort. You know, hey, if it's, if it's hard, then I'm not going to do it. And if you're only willing to love when it's easy, if you're only willing to love when it's convenient, if you're only willing to love when it doesn't take much effort on your part, guess what? There's going to be a lot of people you're not going to love. Because a lot of people, it takes diligence. It takes effort. It's not easy. And so if you're just loving when it's easy, yeah, there might be some people in your life that, you know, you get along with great and you have all this in common and it's so easy to love them and they love you back. But you know what? Those will be the only people you love if you're only going to love when it's easy, only going to love when it's convenient. You'll never be able to do what Jesus says of love your enemies because that's surely not easy. That's surely not convenient. You know, there's going to be times in any relationship that you have that lasts for a while that it's difficult to continue to show love because people have bad days. People are sinners. Lots of times they're not very lovable. And if you're only going to love when it's easy and only love when it's going to be convenient, then there are going to be those days, well, I'm not loving you today. You're not lovable today. You're not making it easy on me. And so don't expect me to be diligent. Don't expect me to try harder. Don't expect me to invest in this because I'm lazy when it comes to loving. And sadly, that's a lot of Christians. That's kind of describes the way in which they demonstrate love. And so Paul challenges us, don't be like that. And once again, we see Jesus was diligent in loving us. In order for Jesus to love us, he had to go through the most horrible thing imaginable. I mean, physically, he suffered such excruciating pain and the flogging that he went through and the crucifixion that he went through. Emotionally, he suffered so much as those closest to him betrayed him and denied him and abandoned him. But probably the most significant of all is what he was willing to suffer spiritually when he took our sin upon himself, when he took the wrath of God that we deserve because of our sin upon himself, and he was separated for the first time from the Father. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Well, he forsook him because of our sin. And Jesus went through all of that to show us love. It wasn't easy. It wasn't convenient. 
It wasn't something that he just said, well, you know, if it's easy for me, I'll do it. No, this was something that took everything from him, but he was still willing to do it. And I'm so thankful that Jesus was not lagging and lazy in his love for us. And we shouldn't be that way either. As we look at others and as we're in that you know, opportunity to show love, to say, you know what, I'm going to be diligent like Christ was to me. Because when we are uh, lazy, we definitely won't love a lot of people. So the fifth practical way we should show love to other believers is by being diligent in our love. The next way Paul challenges us to love other believers is that we should be fervent in spirit. This Greek word here translated fervent means to boil over with heat, to be extremely hot, to be zealous and passionate. This word was describing someone with great passion, great zeal. It was so zealous that it boiled over out of them. And so this is a great word to describe someone, you know, with a great passion and zeal for something. But when it comes to our love for others, that's the challenge that we need to be this hot, boiling over, zealous person, just passionate about loving people, and it just comes out, and it just boils out of our life, and it impacts those who are around us. And you know what? It's so important at any time for this to be the case for the body of Christ, but even more important now that we're living in the last days, because Jesus tells us something about what many people's love will be like in the end times, which I believe we're living in. Matthew 24, 12 says this, And because lawlessness will abound, the love of many will grow cold. So Jesus says one of the signs of the end times is that as you look at the culture around us, the love of many people is going to grow cold. Instead of this fervent, hot, boiling over love, demonstrated clearly, demonstrated passionately, there's going to be a cold-hearted group, a loveless group, people whose love has gone cold. And we definitely see that in our culture today where people have lost the zeal and the passion and the desire to demonstrate love. I mean, you see this so clearly within the family. You see this so clearly within the culture as a whole. I mean, if you look at marriages, I mean, we are seeing a huge lack of love. Love has gone cold in many marriages today, and it's just evident, you know, with what's happening. You see this within the family as a whole. I mean, it's sad that you come across kids that really their parents had never really demonstrated much love to them. Some kids had never even heard the words, I love you from their parents. And then the other side of the coin, you have kids who have parents who do love them, but don't love them back. You have kids that are just super unloving towards their parents. And in our culture today, you know, I mean, all you got to do is just get on social media if you want to see how the love has gone cold, you know, the way in which people speak about one another and, and how they speak about those who differ from them in their opinions. And, you know, we just see a huge lack of love within the culture today. And this is why it's so important for the church to shine bright. You know, we see this love that's gone cold. Well, we need the love that's hot, the love that's apparent, the love that's real, that's going out into a culture to show them, hey, we are disciples of Jesus. This is what the life that you could have is like. You don't have to be in this loveless situation. God has a fervent and hot and passionate love for this world. John 3.16, our most commonly quoted, for God so loved the world that He gave His only Son. 
He has this love that boils over to people. He loves us desperately, and He wants us to have that kind of love. Not the cold-hearted love, not the love that's gone cold and doesn't care, but that one is passionate for others. But you know what? If you want to stay hot in your love, you got to stay connected to the heat. The heat is Jesus. He's the source. And so often we think, oh, I'll be hot in my love, but I'm avoiding the, the source of the heat, and it doesn't work that way. You know, we disconnect ourselves from the heat, we're going to eventually become cold. That's just a reality of what's going to take place. And so if you neglect time with Jesus, the source of love, you neglect time with Him, then you're not going to be loving. You know, that's the reality of all this. It's a great challenge for us to love one another, but the reality is, in order for that to happen, we have to spend time with the God of love. Because within ourselves, I don't have love for you like I'm supposed to. You don't have love for me like you're supposed to. It comes from the Spirit of God. It comes from time with God. That is the source. And if we avoid the source, then guess what? We're not going to be able to fulfill the command to love one another like Christ loved us. And you know what? When you invest in the Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, the very first and most important one is love. It's just going to come out naturally. As I spend time with Jesus, as I invest in spiritual things in my life, the natural byproduct of that is I'm going to start loving like Jesus loved. But when I neglect time with Jesus, neglect investing spiritually in my life, my love's going to go cold. You know, and that's something that Jesus rebukes the church in Ephesus for. I have all these wonderful things that you've done, but I have one thing against you. You have left your first love. You've left me. And guess what? Because they left their first love, their love as a whole for everyone else was impacted as well. And so we need to make sure time with Jesus is a priority if we want to see any of this love be demonstrated in our lives. The sixth practical way we should love other believers is to be fervent in spirit. And now the final one that we're going to look at this morning is that we should be serving the Lord. You know, I think one of the big issues of why we struggle loving others is we miss who we ultimately should be doing it for. I know in my own life that's been a struggle. If you're loving people just for them, I love you because you deserve it. I love you because you love me back. I love you ultimately because of something that you are going to do you know, in return. If that's our only motivation, if that's the only reason that I demonstrate love to certain individuals is because they're deserving, it's because of how they treat me, it's because of some kind of relationship that I have with them, then there is going to be a lot of times you're not going to love them and there'll be a lot of people you don't love at all. But that's not what the Bible teaches us. Ultimately, our reason for loving people should be in service to God, in obedience to God. Colossians 3.23 tells us, And whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord, not to men. Whatever you do, love would fall under that category. One of the most important things that we do, we do it as to the Lord. He should be the reason. Obedience to Him should be the ultimate purpose, not to people. That shouldn't be what motivates us. That shouldn't be what drives us. Ultimately, I should love because Jesus commands me to love. You know, I have, and all of you who are husbands have, a command to love your wife as Christ loved the church. doesn't say love your wife when she deserves it. Love your wife when she's lovable. It just says love her period. 
But if I'm not all doing it unto Jesus, if I'm not doing it in obedience to him, if I'm not doing it as I serve him, if I'm just doing it, say, you know what, Jenny, I'll love you when you're lovable. I'll love you when you love me back. I'll love you when you do this, this, this. But when you don't do it, don't expect any love from me. And sadly, that's the way that a lot of relationships are. You give me what I want and then I'll, I'll love you back. But that's not what the word of God says. It says, I need to love her even when she's having a really bad day, even when she's not lovable, even when she's doing things that I'm just like, you know, this is frustrating me. This is not what I want. Hey, I still am to do it. Why? Because she deserves it? No, because I'm to be obedient to Jesus Christ. And when we miss that, when we lose sight of the fact that I love because I'm serving Jesus, first and foremost, before anything else, we're not going to love a lot of people. But if that is truly the motivation, if I can truly say, you know what, I'm going to love you because Jesus tells me to, then there's nothing you can do that will stop me. There's nothing that you can do that's going to be like, well, I would have loved you until you said that. I would have loved you until you did that. I would have loved you or whatever. No, you're not in the equation. I'm going to do it because Jesus told me to, period. Regardless of how you treat me, regardless of how you act, regardless of our relationship, I'm going to do it because of my relationship with Jesus and obedience and service to him. And that's why Jesus can say, love your enemies. Because if we based it just on what they can do for us and what we can get from them, then we would have no motivation whatsoever. Enemies hate us. They do bad things to us. So how could he say love your enemies if it was based on our relationship with the person and what they could do? No, it's based on our relationship with Jesus and obedience to him and demonstrating it in spite of what other people might do. Because once again, this is how Jesus demonstrated love to us. He demonstrated love as a perfect example of someone who was in the will of the Father, obedient to the Father, serving the Father. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane, he prayed something that clearly demonstrates this, clearly demonstrates his love in connection to service and obedience to the Father. Luke 22, 41 and 42 says this, And he was withdrawn from them about a stone's throw, and he knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. Jesus knew what was coming. He wasn't like, oh, just bring it on. I'm so happy to go through all this misery. If there's another way to redeem mankind, if there's another way to deal with the sin of mankind, let this cup pass, but not my will but yours be done. The ultimate reason, the ultimate moving forward of Jesus, he says, hey, you know what? I'm going to be obedient to the Father and serve the Father because if it was just about the people that I'm loving or the situation that I'm in, hey, those would be all the reasons to say, nope, let's not do it. But not my will, but yours be done. 1 John 4, 9-11 shares this with us. In this, the love of God was manifest toward us, that God has sent His only begotten Son into the world that we might live through Him. And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. The greatest way that God has manifest and demonstrated His love for us is by sending Jesus Christ to die on the cross for our sins. And the fact that God showed this amazing love to us in this wonderful way, John says, 
is one of the great reasons for why we should show love to other believers. I want to close this morning just taking some time to remember the amazing love that Jesus displayed for us. And we're going to do that by taking communion together. But you know what? As we look back on the love of Jesus, there's something else I want us to just ponder. And that's what he says here in verse 11. Beloved, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And so as we remember the love that God has clearly displayed to us, let that also motivate us to show that love to other believers. That as we sit back and we think, well, they're not deserving. Well, guess what? Neither were you of Christ's love. Oh, well, they're so horrible. Well, guess what? That's the way you treated Jesus. And so all the excuses that we might give of why someone is not deserving, why someone is not you know, able to receive whatever it may be, all we need to do is look to the cross, look to Jesus, look how He treated us, and remember, hey, if Jesus can love us that way, then we need to pray that He would help us love others that way. And we have here several, seven practical ways in which we can show love. Love without hypocrisy. Love by abhorring what is evil and clinging to what is good. Love by being kindly affectionate to one another and brotherly love. Love by honoring through giving preference to one another, by being diligent, by being fervent in spirit. And love by ultimately serving the Lord. Let Him be the priority. But you know what? If you go through this list, not only these seven, but the next eight, you'll see Jesus did all of them. You know, He is the, the demonstration, the example for us. And so as we look and remember what He has done, let it impact us, let it move us to how much He loves us, but also let's pray, Lord, help me to have Your love for others. Help me to show that love to them. And you know what? The easiest amount of love is the love to other believers. I mean, it's harder to love the world, granted, but the challenge here that we've looked at this morning is, you know, let's love those who have the most important thing in common with us, Christ, who we're going to spend all eternity with in heaven. You know, if we can't do that, you know, we got problems. And let's ask the Lord to help us do that. And so, can I have the worship team come on up? And as the worship team comes up, they're going to lead us in a song. And as they do that, we're going to have the communion elements passed around. And I just encourage you, hold on to them. Uh, we'll take those elements together. Uh, and as they're coming up, I just want to read to you um, just the encouragement as we come to this time of communion from 1 Corinthians 11. It says this, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which He was betrayed took bread. And when He had given thanks, He broke it and said, Take, eat. This is My body which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of Me. In the same manner, He also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in My blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of Me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death till He comes. So I just encourage you to just get quiet before the Lord. If there's any unrepentant sin in your life, I encourage you just to bring it before the Lord. Confess it to Him. Get right before Him. Uh, and as we just come to the Lord and worship, uh, let's just prepare our hearts for this time. So.